God is so good, isn't He? God is so good. When we think about all that God has given us, we as helpless, hopeless sinners, that God, in His abundant and rich mercy, sent Christ. He gave us Christ. Christ came and He he died for our sins. And if we put our trust and our hope and our faith in Him, then the relationship with God is restored. We have access to Him. We become His children. He becomes our Father. He is so good. And not only that, but God hasn't left us alone in this world. That God is so good that He has given us His Spirit. He has given us a purpose. He's given us a plan. He has given us a work to do. And it's a glorious, rich, difficult work. But God is so good. Another way to say this would be, if we truly understand who Jesus is, if we truly understand salvation, we could use the words that we are rich in Christ. All that we have in Him, we are rich. But yet, many times we do this awful thing. We trade the riches and the glory that we have in Christ for other things that are lesser, that will never satisfy As I was studying for this passage, one of the things that it reminded me of is that oftentimes Casey and I will plan to go out on a date. Uh, Many times we'll decide beforehand where we're going, and let's say that we're going to go have just a really, really good meal. One of the things that we'll do for the kids is that we'll order them Domino's pizza. So me, if I know I'm going to have this really good meal, maybe I won't eat a lot of the day and I'm saving up for this meal, And how many times have I ruined my dinner by once the pizza gets home, I eat the pizza? What I'm really guilty of is eating the kid's crust. (laughs) Or something that I used to do all the time would be I would call Casey on the way home saying, hey, what are we having for dinner? And I may be really excited about what we're having for dinner. And I may stop on the way home and get a bag of jelly beans. And I'm just going to have one or two that I'll end up eating the whole bag and just ruin the dinner. Hunger is a good thing. Hunger is a God-given thing. And God has given this, us this hunger to hunger and thirst after the right things. And one of the things, brothers and sisters, that I hope you know that our hunger is meant to be satisfied in Christ. That's the steak dinner. That's the satisfaction that you can't get anywhere else. But how often, how often do we satisfy or try to satisfy ourselves with lesser things? Things of this world. Things that won't fill us. In fact, what we're going to learn this morning is that not only will these things not fill us, not only will these things not satisfy us, but these things can ultimately poison us and destroy us. As we've been going through the book of James, it's been so good. 
God has used James in my life to just continually reorient me to the truth of God, to the truth of what we're supposed to be about, to the, the truth of what life is really like. And as we get to this passage this morning, it's, it's no different. It's not an easy passage, but it is worth it getting into. You know, I, many of you, I want to thank you for praying for us, the Bowers and Casey and I spent Ten days or so in India, uh, working with uh, some of the people that we support here. We, we can't broadcast names over the internet, but you know who we're talking about. And we got to go and we got to see just this good work that was going on. And it was very long travels, 30 or 40, I don't even know how many hours we were traveling. You lose track of what day it is, what time it is. You're all the way across on the other side of the world. Things are completely different. The areas in which we were going into were very low income. They were slums. You see poverty. You see kids and women digging through the trash for their daily subsistence. It's hard. It's hard. It's difficult. One of the things that I thought about, one of the things that I looked up to make sure I got this right, is the town that we were in, there are over 4 million people in this town, and in this town it's estimated that there are 0.36% Christians. Notice I said point, less than 1% Christian, that's about 11,000 Christians in over 4 million people. And I'd be willing to bet, if we took Single Mountain Bible Church and drew a 50 mile radius around the Bible Church... I'd be willing to bet that we almost have 11,000 churches around us. And way less than 4 million people. It's hard. For the, for the workers that we were visiting, it's a hard life. There's not a whole lot of community. It's a hard work. They're raising kids in a difficult place. And so you have to ask the question, why in the world would you go? You had to learn a whole new language. You, you ripped away from your family. You can't just turn on the tap water and drink it. Why go? And I think as, as, as I ask myself that question, and as you're forced to ask that question when you're in a place like that, I think it all comes back to, you know where I'm going, it all comes back to the chair, right? As we, if, you're, if you're visiting with us, we've been using this chair as an illustration of God sitting us down and counseling us in this, in this counseling chair and the Word of God being over us. And I think it all comes back to this chair where we're sitting in this chair and we're asking ourselves, why do we do what we do? What is our purpose what is our goal? Why am I here? What are my aims? Not everyone is called to go to India. Not everyone is called to go and to be a missionary. But if you're a Christian, you've been given a new purpose. You've been given a new life. That the goal of your life is to be a bearer of the good news, whether that's where you work, whether that's in your home, whether that's in your school, whether that's in your neighborhood, whether that's in the gym that you work out at, that we are to be salt and light. We are to be God's people bringing the gospel to a nation 
that's dying. That we know that we live in such a way where we know and we understand that we are feasting on something that is good. And the world is is bidding us to come and to eat and to partake of things that will never satisfy. This is who we are. This is who we are to be. And the tragedy, the tragedy for us Christians is that so oftentimes we're settling for pizza when we could be eating steak. That we're selling for jelly beans when we could be eating Diane Cross's carrot cake, right? The good stuff. And God wants us to feast on the good stuff that He is providing us, ultimately to feast upon Himself and the glory and the hope and the joy that He brings. James is getting our attention. Notice in verse 1, it starts with, Come now. This isn't the first time that we've seen this phrase in our text. If you were here last week as Gary was preaching, uh, in chapter 4, verse 13, it starts with that as well. Come now. Last week, as, as Gary talked and as Gary preached last week, we saw that James was telling us, Come now. Listen. Your life is but a vapor. You who think that you have it under control, you who think that you have it all figured out, you who think that you've got all these plans, listen, your life is but a vapor. You don't have it all under control. The goal of your life is to live for Him. It's not to live for yourself. And we are to place ourselves under His sovereign, righteous hand. Verse 16 told us, But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. This boasting is this reality that you think exists, that you've got it all under control. And then we had verse 17, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. If you've been with us through this book, it won't surprise you. If you were to ask yourself, well, what is James talking about? You who know what to do but don't do it. It's very clear that James has been calling us over and over as we've been in this study to walk the path of wisdom. To walk the path of godliness that God and His ways are what's best for us. And He's given us examples of that. And ultimately, over and over again in the book of James, He has told us to love our neighbor. To love our neighbor. And you might now be thinking, oh, that's it. That's it. That's why you travel thousands of miles. That's why you pick up your family and move to a place like India where you don't know anybody to, shed the God, to share the gospel, the good news to people who don't know. That's it. I'm reminded of a quote by C.T. Studd. I heard of this through another pastor who would use this quote often, only one life and soon will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. Do we believe this? Let's hear that again. Children, adults, retirees who are also adults. (laughs) Only one life and soon will pass. Pass. 
Only what's done for Christ will last. James is calling us to reconsider. Come now, reconsider. Live your life. Spend your time on things that are worthwhile. And this week, this week there's a connection, not only in this word, come now, but notice at the beginning of last week, he, the verse that, we, that you all looked at, verse 13, come now you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and to make a profit. That lingering over the text last week was this idea of business, of money, Working. And then this week, just in case you missed it, James is narrowing in and has some sharp words. You who are rich, weep and howl. Weep and wail. This is not how we think, is it? Many years ago, I got the opportunity, Casey and I got the opportunity to take a trip in the British Virgin Islands and we saw Richard Branson's yacht. The first thing that came to my mind was not weep and wail. It was, I want to ride on that thing. So James is doing something here. He's reorienting us. He's... he's, He's challenging us. He's turning our ideas upside down. And we need to ask the question, what do you mean, James? Isn't this the goal of life is to go and accumulate wealth and to get all you can? But James is telling us, you who are rich, weep and wail. Hear this. And I want to ask you if you believe it this morning. You who are rich, weep and howl for or because your miseries, because of for your miseries which are coming upon you. I, I think immediately we, we, we want to turn this off. We say, yeah, you know, Lewis, yeah, those rich people. And what's hard for me is after spending the last 10 plus days or so in India, it's very hard for me to get out from under the reality that I'm rich. I would dare say that all of us in this room could be put in that category. Another kind of maybe odd question that we have to ask of this text is, is who is this written to? I mean, this isn't the first time that James has brought up riches and money. Two other times, you'll remember as we've gone through this study, in chapter 1, James brought up riches. Verses 10 and 11. The rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and the flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too is the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. That James is saying that 
Riches are fleeting. They won't last. But even in James' writing, it's almost like that other, the rich man out there. And again in chapter 2, we have James talking again about wealth. You remember this, that James is telling uh, his readers, hey, if a rich man comes into your assembly and he's got a fine golden ring and nice clothes, don't show partiality. Don't sit him in the place of honor. In this passage, we get this idea of, of who is your neighbor and that how we are to evaluate people and that we are not supposed to evaluate them based upon finances and riches. We're supposed to evaluate in different ways. And then James tells us that these people, these rich, are these not the ones, verse 6, who have dishonored the poor man? Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court. And so you may say, well, look, who is James writing to? Because it seems like probably most of the people in this church are poor. And I think it's probably right. They are the ones most likely being drugged into court. And I think so in some ways what James is doing is he's, he's trying to pull them away from this idea of, of money being a blessing and money being the end-all, be-all. And he's trying to say, hey, listen, you're in a bad situation. Trust me, I'm going to take care of you. I do think it's possible that there were rich people in the church. I mean, we have examples in the New Testament of, of folks who were quite wealthy who were in the church. And so maybe, maybe they were the ones that were supposed to hear some of this. Watch out. I think the net that probably catches all of us and all of the original audience was this. How many of us envy? How many of us have this idea that if we only had more, if we only had this, that we would be satisfied? How many of us, how many of the original listeners felt this pull? This pull towards riches and wealth and wanting to be like those people who had more. I think we could put all of ourselves in that boat. And so what James is doing is that he's saying, don't let this become your idol. Don't let this become what defines you. Don't let this become the direction of your life. If that's what happens... Weep and wail. It's not the money. It's not the stuff. It's the pursuit. It's the heart. It's the longing. It's the, that being the thing that we think is going to satisfy the appetite. That if that's the position that we're in, we need to weep and wail because we are in danger. Did you hear it? There's more. As Josh was reading this text this morning. Listen to the language that's, that you hear in verse 3. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Do you hear this 
theme and this idea of judgment that's taking place within this text. Talking about the last days. Talking about your flesh being consumed like fire. In God's economy, the pursuit of riches is destructive. It's foolish. The world is perishing. The world is perishing. And as Christians, we believe that there is a day to come. And when we read about this day to come, when we will be reunited for eternity with our Savior, we read about what that day will be like. Glorious, holy, feasting, celebration. This is the economy of God. This is what we are driving towards. Christians, how foolish is it to waste all of our life on things that will perish. Not only will they perish, but think about it this way. This text tells us that what happens is that if we spend our life, if the goal of our life, if our hearts, if our soul, if everything that we are is about accumulating wealth, when we stand before the Lord one day, everything that you've accomplished in that vein will speak of your judgment. It will condemn you. It's not who we are. It's not who we are. That's poison food. It's lesser. God is calling us Christians, brothers and sisters, to something that is much greater And so I hope you're beginning to see is if this is the tenor of your life, if this is what your life pursuits and goals are, that you're beginning to see why we would look and say, weep and wail. Look at verses 2 and 3. Notice what it says about riches. This is not a new theme. We saw this in chapter 2 as well, didn't we? Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. It's interesting when we go back and look in chapter 2, we see this rich man that's wearing the gold ring and wearing the nice clothes. And, And what we would know if we lived in this time, that these were like investments, right? Gold, silver, nice clothing. That this would be akin to uh, maybe stocks, some kind of portfolio, land investments. And we all know the reality that you can't take it with you. In this day and age, the, the actual coinage, the gold and silver was mixed with other metals and it would actually rust. The clothing that we wear, we know if we leave this clothing... Uh, in our closets for too long that moths will come and eat holes in them. How silly would it be is if this is what you invested in 
and you stood before the Lord, and all you had was some moth-eaten clothing and some rusted metal. And equally foolish to think that we would stand before the Lord, and He may ask what we have done with what we have been given, and we open up our portfolio. Look, Lord, I made some wise investments. In fact, even while I'm here, it's accruing some interest. Look, Lord, look at my home on Zillow. It's going up in prices. Look, Lord, look at the money in my bank account. Again, hear me. These things in and of themselves are not evil, but hear what our Lord and Savior has said. James, as we know, has the words of Jesus just right on the tip of his tongue, especially the Sermon on the Mount. And so as we go back again one more time to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For, here's the issue, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve two masters. Listen, I I know I say this quite often and I mean it. There are many of you whom have achieved wealth and who have achieved money, and I often pray that God will continue to give you money because I see you using that for the purposes of the kingdom. There's nothing wrong with money. What there is something wrong with is where our heart becomes focused on that becomes the goal, that becomes the God. Where your treasure is, your heart will be. And sometimes, maybe all the times, if money and treasure is our goal, how does this affect how we love our neighbor? People become objects that either stand in the way of us achieving what we want to achieve, or they become means in which we can achieve what we want to achieve. Look at verse 4. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Now listen, here's what's going on. In this day and age, it was was quite a bit different than it is in our day and age. In this day and age, the laborers would get paid by the day. And there was good reason for that. You know, we get paid weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, whatever. In this day and age, they got paid day, day by day because day by day they would have to purchase food. They would need money to survive day by day. There was no Costco. You couldn't buy 5,000 granola bars for $4. And then they wouldn't last, right? Preservatives, refrigeration. So when it says, when our text tells us, Behold, the pay of your labors who mowed your fields and which been withheld by you cries out against you. What this is, is that this is the boss, this is the owner of the field withholding finances 
And it is more than just kind of unfair that he's withholding finances, but it's dangerous. They were dependent upon that. And so this landowner, what he could do is withhold, and then that person who was working the field becomes enslaved. Becomes totally dependent. Because you owe them money. And the landowner is just getting richer and he has his workers right where he wants them and he is literally making a fortune off of their back. Is this loving our neighbor? No. And don't miss how serious God takes this. The outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. This title in the Old Testament, Lord of Hosts, we see this in Isaiah over and over again, that it's, it's God, it's the name for God, and it's God bringing justice, making things right. And the idea and the imagery here is this mighty, sovereign God who is the commander over the host, over the angels, over the armies of heaven. And so hear this correctly. Weep and wail, you who mistreat your workers, because the cries of the workers have reached the God who is way more powerful than what you could imagine. And you have to begin to ask yourselves, do you want to put yourself in this position? Again, there are many of you here that are managers, that manage people. Some of you own businesses. And one of the cool things about being your pastor is that I have gone throughout this city and one of the cool things I've heard is that many of you do this the right way. You love your people well. Through owning a business, through managing people, you're loving your neighbor. You're providing them with a job. You're providing them with uh, wages. You're providing them with an environment. You're, you're loving them well. It's a great opportunity. And there's this subtle shift. If we're not looking at our position, or if we're not looking at our um, uh, the company that we own, as a place to be able to glorify God, and that's not the ultimate goal, then this subtle shift can occur. And if our goal is to make the profit, if the goal is to accumulate wealth, those same workers, we can easily mistreat. Now, some of you here who are employees, you hear this and you're like, yes, get them, God. I had a friend in seminary who, uh, he was in a very difficult situation and he kept being really nice to the person that had offended him. And I, I remember one day I asked him, I was like, man, like I'm really impressed. What are you doing? And he said, hot coals, man. Hot coals. Yeah, so Romans chapter 12 tells us that our enemies, that we're supposed to do good deeds to our enemies, and by doing so, then you're pouring hot coals on their head. And I was like, I don't think that's what that verse is meaning. It's true. It's true. But I don't think the heart is supposed to say, 
hot coals. I can't wait till they get what they get. The point is that our heart should break. Our heart should break for the wealthy. Our heart should break for the ones that are pursuing riches. Our heart should break because their doom is sure. That is, we are to be a good neighbor towards them means that we will warn them of the judgment to come. That we'll tell them of this greater pleasure. That we'll tell them that the well that they're drinking from is poisoned. Will we love our neighbor this much? Hear this again. It's not the number in the bank account. It's the affections of the heart. Look at verse 5. You have lived luxuriously on earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. This verse is so true, and I think we all know it. I think even the person whose God is their bank account at the end of the day, they really know this. I think everybody, I, I think the, the person who, who we look at, the Richard Bransons of the world who have way too much money, I think we look at them, I, I, I think if we were to spend time with them before long, if they, let the, if they let the shade down just a little bit, we would see that they have an itch that's not scratched by money. That there's something going on in their life that they're not satisfied. That Domino's pizza doesn't really satisfy. Those jelly beans, they don't really satisfy. And we know that deep down, and I think they know that deep down. And it's tragic. I mean, listen again, it's tragic. By living this way, by this being your goal, by this being your God, you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. In verse 6, you've condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Meaning that this can go so far that your neighbor is drastically hurt, or in this day even may lose their life for your pleasure. Church, please listen in here. Whether you're young, Parker, or whether you're older, living off your retirement. I won't name names there. You know who you are. I think the danger that we have, church, and oh, that some of you young people could get this young. The danger we have is that what we want to know is, okay, where's that line? Mm-hmm. Lewis, where's the line where I can kind of, kind of do both? When we hear weep and howl, I think that condemns us. There's not a line. Only one life and soon will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. The goal is for our heart to be so in love and so enriched by who Christ is and what He has done for us that our natural 
inclination is to live for Him and to enjoy Him and to pursue that, not to pursue towing some line. As a Christian, we are to be all in for Him and His glory. That the aim of our life is to love God and to love our neighbor, not the accumulation of wealth. Listen, there's been a lot made of what's going on on some college campuses. And if you get on social media, you'll have some say, hey, this is a false revival, this is a real revival, blah, blah, blah. Don't know. Don't know. Here's what we do. Do you want to experience revival? Do you want to experience a movement in your own heart and in your own life? an outpouring of God and His Spirit in your life, then you have to see your sin for what it is because at the moment you see your sin for what it truly is, you see the cross for what it is. You see our Savior for who He is. You see our God for who He is. And your heart wells up with love and joy because this is the stuff that we're supposed to be feasting on. Church, if we want revival, this is where it starts. In the joy that knowing our sins are forgiven. In the joy of knowing that God is our Father. In the joy of knowing that He's got a work for us to do. The joy that knowing that He is holding us, that He is loving us, that we are rich in Christ. And this becomes overwhelming, mind-boggling to us. This is the outpouring. This is revival. Are the pursuits of this world holding you back? Would you this morning give up the candy to taste and to see that the Lord is good? Would you join me this morning in a prayer of repentance. Let's pray together. God, it's all of us. God, you have given us holy taste buds. that aren't satisfied with the stuff of this world. God, I just want to pray this morning that the pursuits and pleasures of this world would become so distasteful to us that we don't let it anywhere near us. And God, I want to pray that you would become so desirous for us that it becomes the joy of our life to forsake all and to trust you. God, I just want to repent. How so easily I choose the pleasures of this world over you.
this text is hard, but it leads to joy. Your spirit, do that now among us. You're good. You're good.